What's up guys, welcome back to Rebranded Safety. In this week's episode, we're talking all about how to create a culture of belonging in your business. Doesn't that sound good? Let's get into the podcast. Health and safety is almost a victim of its own success. We're in a pressured regime of health and safety regulations. A huge fire engulfs a tower block in Children being forced to wear goggles to play conkers at school. Worst oil field disaster, 164 dead. Rebranding Safety, the modern health and safety podcast, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk Fluent and your host, James McPherson. Welcome back to Rebranding Safety, everybody. Rebranding Safety does exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to rebrand health and safety. We're here to challenge the perception. We're here to challenge those over-the-top health and safety gone mad practices. We're here to provide you with free conversations, free guidance, free support. So feel free to kind of get in depth of all of our back catalog. Go and check out all the amazing conversations we've got. Don't forget to go and check us out on YouTube as well. If you're listening on the podcast, we provide bite-sized videos on anything to how to have a career in health and safety to how to manage manual handling so there's everything you could ever need all provided in a modern entertaining manner on rebranding safety so this week we're talking all about how to create a culture of belonging so today's guest is dialing all the way in from america he's the founder and chief belonging architect at rudiment solutions a people empowerment company that works with individuals and organizations to thrive in all things people, process, and profits. Now, isn't that a tagline? Our guest served in the U.S. Navy, done time in corporate world, leading him to write in his book, The Belonging Factor. Make sure you listen to the end of this podcast for a free giveaway of a copy of this book. That's right, a free giveaway. If you listen to the end, you'll find out how you can get a free copy of this book. So thank you very much to today's guest. His name is Devin Halliday. Let's get into the podcast. So Devin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's a great, great time to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. Look forward to, uh, to having a good talk, man. Yeah, first American guest, I think. I'm thinking back. Yep, first American guest from America. First American from America. All right, that's me. <laughs> okay, so I want to kind of just read in about you, obviously, and, and kind of one of the, there was one kind of paragraph that stood out in, in the kind of research and the content and stuff that you'd sent me and I'd seen. Um, and just kind of probably touch on that really briefly and then maybe you could just tell us about your story um but kind of just to put a bit of context to the podcast then like within health and safety as you know it's a a primarily health and safety podcast and we we talk about culture all the time you know culture 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 and i think a lot of us don't really understand what that is or how many different millions cogs go into that thing that creates this elusive culture um and like I said, there was one thing that you wrote that r- really struck a chord with me. And it, most organizations have well-written, well-intentioned cultures, value statements. They review them at big meetings, plaster them on walls and buildings, designed to inform how the brand and people behave. They're intended to have a positive impact on people, process, 
profit. The problem, a staggering majority of them are bullshit, which for me, I just love that when I read it. So <laughs> that, that just kind of puts in context for the listeners, um, I think, how this conversation is going to go. But why don't you dive in and tell us how you came to be you, what you do, and uh, yeah, your story. Yeah, man. So I came to be me uh, courtesy of both of my amazing parents. That was a wonderful thing that happened. I had no choice in that. Uh, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad it did happen. Right. So, <laughs> um, so, so you know, I'll, I'll kind of um, I'll, I'll work through the process here. So I, you know, I, and I know you mentioned I was in the Navy and here in the U.S. Navy. And that was a pivotal piece for me because growing up, I was always attending um, you know, air shows and seeing the you know the navy blue angels fly their their fancy fighter jets and you know the movie top gun came out all those things that made me go all right and this is a place for me so what did i end up doing i ended up joining the navy and going to this place because i i had an idea from a young kid that's where i belonged and um you know talking about safety and working on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier is a very, very unsafe place to be. <laughs> but the, the, the Navy has done a great job at, um, at putting processes in place to, to help create as much safety as you can in, in such a um, hazardous work environment. I mean, to the point where even when we were in the Gulf and you know, it's 130 degrees outside, plus you're on the flight deck with all the heat from the jet exhaust, they were running us on you know 20 minute shifts and then we'd have to go hydrate and and take a break, right? So, uh, so good mm. stuff there. But what I, what I realized in the Navy um, was that as cool as all of the high performance aircraft and everything were, uh, it was still the military, and we still went out and you know executed our missions. And our missions often included um, things that maybe didn't align with my values, right? Um, we were doing things uh, for geopolitical reasons, and they didn't necessarily agree with me. And so while much of the decision making was all about my pay grade, I had a decision I could make within my pay grade, and that was to choose to move on from the Navy um, and into you know something else. Didn't know what that was going to be. Spent the next 18 years of my career in the corporate world and uh, was predominantly in sales, sales operations, and leadership positions. And that's where I really developed this idea and understanding across um, the entire organization. It didn't matter the function, whether it was a facilities and maintenance function or it was a sales or executive leadership function. There often was this big disalignment with the values that were stated versus what was actually lived in practice. And it showed up in so many different little ways. And I began really this journey when I got into leadership in that company of trying to understand what makes people tick. How do, how are people motivated? What is what gives people a, a sense of purpose and trust of their organization and allows them to be willing to share ideas, to give feedback, to innovate and collaborate together to actually get shit done. Right. Because the bureaucratic process just was not getting it done. So that's really kind of what's informed up until this point where then I decided that there was a next phase for me. And that was going out on my own, founding this company, Rudiment Solutions, and creating uh, these cultures within businesses where the things that they say are important are the things that they actually do and live in their values through behaviors and actions, not just through fancy statements and then a bunch of garbage in between. Hmm. That there's something you said in there. I kind of want to jump on that. That kind of you, you seem to have that a really good kind of self-awareness to be able to acknowledge in the Navy that their values are not aligned to your values. How 
how did how did you go about like knowing your values like, i think that's that's something quite easy to say but how, how does somebody actually do that because i think to, to be able to be a good leader i suppose you have to know yourself first yeah, so I would say unquestionably to be authentic as a leader, and, and we we'll probably talk about that word a bit because it is a, a word that gets you know very commonly used. But um, mm. the the to be authentic, you have to know yourself. You have to be able to self be self aware and self analyze and understand your your faults and your opportunities as well as those things that are strengths of yours. Because also any strength can become in the wrong situation. It can become a a you know, liability of yours if you don't know how to, to use it or manage it the right way. Right. And mm. so, so, so that's all, you know, all a big part of it. But to answer your question of finding my values, that's been a, a deep and long journey. But in that moment, that was one of the early professional moments for me where I said, you know, we have all these planes leaving the deck of our aircraft carrier. And I know that they are on, not on practice runs, that they are on missions and they're leaving with thousands and thousands of pounds of armament and they're coming back empty. And, you know, mm. I, I we, we had we had access to news and other things. And so I kind of knew what was going on um, on the other end of that uh, that mission. And for me, it never dawned on me and I don't know why, but it never dawned on me when I was super fascinated about these high performance aircraft and working with them that. Um, you know, I was in the military and the military's job is to uh, to complete its mission. And when its mm. mission started to involve the taking of life for geopolitical reasons, that was the part for me where I, it just hit me hard that this didn't feel right with me. I'd never I'd, I'd never been an activist or anything like that to where I was like, oh, yeah, you know, killing people to make money off of oil is bad. But then when you start to see that that's kind of what's happening here um for me that was a, a moment where i went okay this is value you know and mm -hmm. i identified it in that moment that I, that I didn't want to be a part of of um that type of environment right and not that it was anything uh bad or not that it was anything that um shouldn't have a purpose or place in the world at the right times just for me it wasn't the place for me so it wasn't so much, you know, being born and raised around a sentence that is your value. It was just that kind of gut feeling you had in that moment that this just doesn't feel right for me personally. And I suppose it's acknowledging that. Yeah. Jumping so on it and making a decision. For sure. And, and, you know, if I go back, probably my values were shaped by things that I was taught growing up, I'm sure. Right. Of course, and yeah. so I, I grew up in, in Northern California. So for those who are listening around the world that aren't familiar with kind of the um, what Northern California is known for here in America is being very progressive, um, fairly liberal minded and being, um, and, and progressive as far as, um, diversity and inclusion and equity and, um, and it's called a hippie tree hugger community, right? There's a lot of <laughs> folks who, who, who are, are, are very just kind of in tune with mother nature and, and all that stuff rather than in tune with commercialism capitalism and those things so it's interesting that i've kind of moved into this commercial and capital world um but i've held these values as part of um of it and they show up in different ways and one of those first ways that hit me professionally was the story i shared with you hmm. so when so let, let's kind of 
Well, well, two ways to go. I want to talk about your book and I want to talk about leadership, like you say. So maybe we start with your book and I bet we'll come on to leadership. So I you, imagine we might. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you've wrote a book. Your book's called uh, Belonging Factor. Um, at what, what point, you know, what took you to that book? You know, so, so you've left the Navy, you've gone into your corporate world, you've started uh, your own business, you've, you've got your own values. At what point did you go? Do you know what I could I could do a book on this and what was kind of the the aim behind the book if that makes sense yeah man so uh, great question and you know for for everybody listening everybody has their lived experiences and their stories right and those things that 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 inform kind of who they are and what they're about and you make decisions about what the important things are and so for me over the course of my time um, with Verizon uh, the company I was with for 18 years it it really was evident in my developed leadership style that it was about people first and what people wanted to accomplish for themselves and in their lives and the differences that they had within a, the environment of a team and how to bring all those things together to help that be a motivator to deliver business outcomes. So you, know, you start doing things a little differently. You stop worrying about the exact result that, that you're working to get and you start worrying about the people that are employed to get the result, right? Um, and and as a leader, you know, it's easy to look at reports and look at data and uh, walk through a building and point out everything that people are doing wrong that doesn't align with the standard. Um, it, what's, uh, what's just as easy, but far more important, is to look at data and you know, let it guide a little bit about what your conversations are gonna be like with the people you're gonna talk to. And walk through a building, and when you see stuff that is happening against uh, whatever the policy or procedure is, instead of pointing it out, usually people know. Um, you kind of ask, "Hey, so why are we doing it this way?" And and you become a, a, a curious person, and then you start to learn more about people and and what's driving them to do the things they're doing. And they're innovating usually when it's something is against uh, kind of the the standard operating procedure. And so as opposed to looking at it as a negative, look at it as an opportunity to learn about what you can do from it. So that really informed a big part for me about how I approached everything I was doing uh, within my teams. So then when I started my business, um, I, I here was the pivotal moment, man. Um, so my dad passed away um, unexpectedly uh, from a heart attack uh, just last year. And, and I was still with my company then, um, my corporate job. And it was very, it was one of those moments where just kind of taking stock of life and what's going on in life and what, what's happening and, and uh, what's the value that I'm bringing. And so for me, that was a moment where I really wanted to just honor something that my dad you know, used to always teach me, which is, um, you know, just wor work hard and stay true to yourself and good things are going to happen. Right. And, uh, and so I started writing out all this stuff that I'd been doing all these processes I've been doing, all, all of these theories that I've either developed or kind of modified and, and prescribed to and modified. And um, and in working with one of my mentors, um, I just shared some of the stuff I was working on. He said, dude, you gotta write a book. People need to know this, they need to hear this, they need to hear it in your voice and your perspective. And so that's why I started with you know everybody who, who has these values or these processes or these systems or these thoughts in their head, they have, they have something that they could put to paper that they could share with others and uh, maybe even have a book in them to, to, uh, to help others learn from the things that they're passionate about and the things that work well in the world that they're in. So for me, it was that moment where I just said, all right, I'm not a writer. 
I'll do this thing and uh, let's try it. Let's see what it's about. And it's been received so, so well. Uh, just this morning, I was reading comments on social media of people who I don't know just talking about the book or talking about me, which is weird <laughs> that somehow now I'm like this pseudo public figure uh, to where you know, people talk about me. Um, with, you know, they tag me, fortunately, so I could see it. But I'm sure there's other people talking that don't tag me in those social media posts. I don't know what they're saying. You're famous. You're famous in the social media world. Yeah, well, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, there's so much you said there, but that you kind of—it's such a good conversation. I think when we're talking about about you kind of leadership and that kind of culture or developing a culture. But there's one thing you said in there about kind of when when your mentor said about you know you've got to write this book from your perspective and your language. And I think like the the leadership games are like consultants on leadership and people that teach uh, CEOs, et cetera, on leadership is is quite a popular market at the moment. There's a lot of people writing a lot of books, doing a lot of content, et cetera. You, and you said about writing it from your perspective and your language. Do you think that's important to get that kind of diversity of of people's interpretations on leadership? Or do you think there is too many people in that game at the moment? Yeah. So, you know, the, uh, there's a famous saying that, that um, you know, everything's already been written. Now it's just being rewritten. Right. Mm. Um, when, when it comes to this game. And um, I don't subscribe to that philosophy. Um, so are there a lot of people in the game? Yeah. And are there people in the game because it's what they grew up? knowing you know in their professional life and they do it because it's a job that pays the bills yeah and are there companies that maybe don't have the best motivation or intention in working with uh, a leader or uh, an organization because they're just trying to extend you know a, a contract for as long as they can to get as much as they can out of it over extended period of time yeah those exist but then if the, the real test here is and this this is the important part is to really start to identify what your values are aligned around integrity or aligned around um, gratitude or aligned around safety uh, and then find somebody to work with who who supports and shares that same alignment of values. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there's a lot of voices in the game. But for me, you know, coming at it from the perspective I, I, I came at this, I'm certainly not the first person to talk about the idea of belonging or workplace cultures. Um, but I do believe that everybody has a voice and a perspective to, to add. And for me, I'm an avid, avid collector of information and mm. resources. I love to I love to learn about successful people, successful organizations um, and successful personal histories. And so as a result, I end up getting a lot of different perspectives on the same set of information. And that's super helpful when it comes to making decisions as a leader. You know, thinking about health and safety um, and just kind of this idea of maybe you're a leader in that space. You're listening to this right now and you've got protocols, right? You've got what's written as, as you know, the scripture, so to speak, of how things have to happen. <clears throat> and some of that is legally mandated. And I understand that. And maybe we can do away with some of the BS legal mandates. But there's also stuff that's policy or just kind of internally driven. And so as a leader... What I find to be the most important skill you can do in kind of developing this muscle of being curious is talk to your people, 
talk to the people who are operating equipment or the people who are working in an environment, get their feedback. Because the reality is they're so much closer to it than you are. And if somebody's doing something just slightly out of regulation, uh, it's worth inquiring as to why. And you might mm -hmm. have a problem you have to fix, or you might have a new solution to solve a, uh, something even bigger because of the way this person has, has invented or innovated approaching their work. Mm. So, so to to get to that that kind of, I, I agree with what you're saying. Or I've I've said for a long time, you know, the the power of why that that just that one word of saying, oh, why are you doing it like that? What it, you can come to either a point of learning for yourself or a point of learning for that person. Either Absolutely. way, someone's going to learn, which is amazing. I think the the one problem, especially in the UK, what we have is having that that creating that culture which is probably a great point to kind of start talking about mm -hmm. your your book as a belonging culture but creating that culture where somebody feels comfortable so me as a machine operator for example feel comfortable to explain why as opposed to going oh shit sorry i'll just do it how i'm supposed to do it um, yeah so how do we create that kind of like your book's called the belonging factor yeah you know, what, what is a belonging culture how do we create that comfortable environment yeah, man. So, so let's get down to it. So, um, trust is ultimately one of the most critical foundations of, of a culture of belonging, trusting mm -hmm. that, that your direct supervisor, um, whoever that may be, maybe your direct supervisor is CEO. It doesn't matter that your direct supervisor is, um, is honest, has integrity, is, is fair, is open, is, you know, all, all of the, the things really go into that, that core underlying trust, right? That, that they're going to do what they say that they, or that they, you know, what I'm trying yeah. to get at here, yeah. that they do what they say mm -hmm. and, and they, they walk the talk. And so, so, so as a leader in building that is there are so many moments where you can erode trust and not even realize it as a leader. Um, one of them is, is, you know, saying you're going to do something and, and not do it because you got busy or whatever else, but that's fine as long as you acknowledge with the person that, hey, you know, this the timeline's going to move or, oh, I'm not going to actually be able to get to it because this and, and acknowledge that. So, I mean, that that's a critical one, but so, so trust is a big one. Being authentic as a leader, knowing your values, knowing what's important to you, knowing that, that, um, that there are clear standards and explaining very clearly what they are working with your team to make sure that the, the team can articulate back, articulate back the importance of those standards. Um, but then here's the big one. You want to build some sort of a, a sense of alignment of the, the important, the core important values to the organization, to the leader and to the employees. And one of the best ways to do that is to empower others, to champion others ideas, to create a system where people don't feel like you said that oh shit what did i do wrong fine yeah no problem boss i'll get back to it but instead feel um empowered to to give that answer so it could start with some things as you know anonymous suggestion boxes if people are in some way mistrusting right that's one way that you can kind of get the process started as long as you take action on those things publicly um acknowledging them and it, that'll start to bring that sense of trust in um, if a person recoils instantly in that whole like, oh shit, you know, am I in trouble moment, uh, that should be an indicator to you as a leader that there there is this fear in your leadership to that person, that, that, that they are compliant um, out of fear rather than in some way collaborative um, with what you're trying to achieve. So it, it often starts as basic as the approach, right? You know, 
hey, why are you doing that? You know, maybe, maybe that simple approach. Yeah, I know you asked why, and that's what <laughs> that's what we just told you to do is ask why. But the the way you approach it, I mean, it's we're talking some real basic human behavior elements that that go into this sense of belonging. But as a leader, you have to be authentic in yourself, so that you have to know yourself. You have to build a community and collaborative effort by people by empowering them to share their ideas, uh, by not just asking when things are wrong. What what uh, what the issue is, but asking when things are right so you can share those things well and just acknowledging when they're right. That's the other piece um, that I would tell you most commonly. Let's say you're walking a shop floor and you've got you know, 50 machine operators all around uh, and everything is going perfectly. Don't just keep walking. Take the time to tell every single person that what they're doing is amazing and mm. thank you for doing it. Right. That that right there is one of the critical elements that will continue to build that empowerment. Mm. I love that. We, 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 I um, spoke a, a while ago to a, a local colleague actually on the podcast and we were talking about, you know, there's one thing we, like I, I've said for a long time that in health and safety, we should treat people like I treat my dog. Now that normally gets attention, um, which is good because that's what I'm trying to do. Um, but the point is that when my, when, when I'm training my dog, he, he gets positive reinforcement. He gets treats mm. every time he does stuff. It's it's We're moving away from that old-fashioned saying that we have in the UK that good is expected um, and, and bad is is spoken about. And and I think we're still there. And, and within health and safety, we are so... We're stuck in that old-fashioned mindset. We walk around and say, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. Why aren't we... And I think I actually said in a podcast, embrace our inner Americans and go around and start <laughs> high-fiving people, not to kind of stereotype, but, you know, to be... Is a it, hold more... on, I, no, I got to ask a question. <laughs> is, 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 is that the stereotype that in, in like, the work environment in America, we're walking around, like, giving high-fives? <laughs> I, I don't think it is, no. I no, you've got to answer. You've got to okay. answer the question. <laughs> what I meant by that was, is, is that in England, we have this stiff upper lip, right? Yeah. And yeah, we yeah, are sure. very insular. We are very prim and proper. And I think I think we still have that now. And we're, we're, we're getting more out of it. But I find personally that Americans are a lot more outward, a lot more verbal, a lot more vocal. You know, they're OK with the, the kind of public display of affection and high fives and stuff like that. In England, especially in a work environment, I think you'd struggle for stuff like that to have that kind of walk around and be like, oh, great work, man. That's awesome stuff. You wouldn't get that in England you would, because good is expected. That's what yeah, I meant by that. It, it's fine to expect good, um, but don't don't treat it like it's an expectation to as a leader to your employees. Right. Mm. Um, so like in what I say by it's 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 fine to expect good. I operate with this understanding that as an employer to an employee relationship, you're you're in a, a contract essentially, right? The employer has said, in exchange for you doing a good job at all of these things that that you've agreed to do, I'm going to pay you on time. And you know, when you have people who show up and do a shit job, the company doesn't show up and give you shit wages. You you still get paid, right? Mm. And and so I do believe to say good is expected. Um, it, it's at, at the most fundamental. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that anything is wrong with that because no. because there is that contractual exchange already happening, right? 
Yeah. Um, you, you, you know, I didn't walk into the interview and say, hey, listen, I'm going to do a shit job if you hire me as long as you still pay me the same amount yeah. and then I, and get hired. That didn't happen. I walked in and I told you all the things that I'm great at and how I'm going to do all this great stuff for you. Uh, so, yeah, is it reasonable to expect good? I do think it's reasonable to expect that. But that doesn't underscore or do, that doesn't remove the ability to um, to walk around just only telling people when things are wrong. Okay. And so so uh, here's what I'll tell you. It's so funny you said the high-fiving thing. I'm like notorious for that. I, I walk I knew around it. all I knew it. the time. I walk around all the time high-fiving people. I'm like, dude. That, that is awesome. Tell, tell me more about why you made that decision. And they're like, well, uh, I thought you were going to be mad, um, but I did this and this, this. And I'm like, why would I be mad? You took initiative to do something and, and try to solve a problem that I didn't even know was a problem. That's rad. Like, thank you so much. High five. And they're like, yeah, but it didn't work. I'm like, okay, well, let's figure it out. You know, it, it's like uh, taking that type of approach. It takes so much energy to be a jerk, you know. It like it it, re it requires the, the use of muscles and and nerves in your body that don't get used when you're being cool, when you're being happy, when you're feeling good. So you know, th that's the part. If that's if that's embrace your inner American, do it all day, man. Do yeah. it. Yeah, it must be. It, it, they're infectious, though, aren't they? Like, if if you as a leader, surely, um, walking around being miserable, being fear-based, you did this wrong, you did that wrong. That's infectious, and that spreads its way through the business. But then, if you're going around exactly well, what you said, man. Sorry. In the business, what happens when you go home after you've just been getting beat up, yeah. through, mm. or not even you, but your colleagues, and you go home to your family, and you're you're in this bad mood, and you mm. know, you just want to you, you you maybe you you make the decision to to go drink to take care of your sorrows, or maybe you isolate yourself or or whatever, but it affects them too. I mean, it's such a, a ripple effect. Um, versus to your point, I'm, I, I guess you were probably going the the other side of that where. You get positive reinforcement. You get encouragement. Mm. You you feel um, like you have a voice that matters, or like just at the very least that hey, I'm doing good, and they see it, right? Yeah. You don't go home with that. So maybe you don't go home high five in your kids, <laughs> but you still go home uh, in a different way, and you bring yourself there in a different way uh, to to those other people who are so important to your life, right? Um, mm. And the coworkers, of course, because what happens in a work environment where the bosses a jerk everybody's grumbling and nobody's as productive as they could be and then sometimes because people are grumbling they're not paying attention or their mind is somewhere else they make a mistake or there's a, a safety concern that, that could potentially come up because of being distracted so so you can actually as a as a, as a leader in, in a safety world you can actually have a detrimental impact to safety by being a dick <laughs> yeah no you can 100 percent. I've, I've been saying for a while you know when people say, oh, you know, what's one of the biggest problems with health and safety is we, we, we can't get the right people. I said, just stop employing dickheads then. Just, just <laughs> stop. And they'll say, well, it's just much easier said than done. No, it's not. You, I know within five minutes of talking to someone, nah, you're a dick. I don't want you to work for me. <laughs> and and that's it. But there's something, what you were talking about there kind of reminded me um, about uh, a little story of like the a, a load of people. I can't remember what they called it, but I was reading a book by Matthew Syed, uh, his newest one called Rebel Ideas. Um, and he, it's all about diversity, which you actually talk about a lot in your book as well. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of diversity of people and diversity of ideas. And, and, and I just kind of want to bring that 
that kind of bit that you were talking about kind of reminded me that people being scared to speak up and say, well, I'm not sure about this. And, and they were basically telling us about this story of this team that was a very hierarchically based team. So I'm the leader. Don't question my authority. That's it. And actually, it turns out that somebody within the team had ignored, had spotted something that was a serious problem. But because they were just the 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 tourists, for example, you know, just the sure. mountain climber, not the guy, not the guy, they didn't say something. And Matthew side talks about like the power of kind of diversity within the teams and being able to be comfortable to talk about. And that's kind of thought. Let let's talk about diversity from your point of view within a belonging factor or a belonging culture. Yeah, so you know, within a belonging culture, I look at diversity from a few ways. So many organizations, particularly here in the U.S., are um, really working hard to build um, a, a team of diversity, and it's measured in a couple of very rudimentary ways. Um, the term "people of color" is used here to define um, in the in the U.S. hiring people who are non-white. So there, there's a POC ratio, and then there's a gender ratio. So how many women versus men in these positions? Um, and then there's a few others. You know, anybody with a disability, anybody with you know a veteran status, military veteran status. Uh, but those are those are kind of you know still secondary to these other two things. But so for me, when I when I think about gender and I think about you know maybe racial or ethnic background. Um, what I'm really thinking about is what are the lived experiences or stories or education uh, that these people have that they can bring into the team, right? The, because uh, just because somebody looks different in their skin color or looks different in their gender for me doesn't, doesn't mean that that diversity is in some way something that adds value um, just in and of itself. And so creating a culture of belonging and having diversity as a big and inclusion as two big pieces of, of the foundation of a culture belonging means that that we're actually not just looking to say hey all right uh, we we hired five black guys two mexican women and um and a disabled guy who's a veteran and and then just ending your story there it's about saying hey we hired these six people who have these amazing experiences and backgrounds Let's figure out how those help our team be better, how those help our team collaborate better, how we get all of those differences aligned into one single mission or one single vision. And so that's why I talk about this, this values piece being so important, because if an organization is clear about its values and it brings in people with diverse backgrounds, so that cognitive or thought diversity too, not just what you look like um, and understand that now the work starts it doesn't it's not done because we hired a diverse group of people that's what starts our process about now making our culture strong and then in turn our our innovation our commitment our collaboration stronger to deliver the types of outcomes we need whatever they are maybe it's to go sell something maybe it's to manufacture something but you're going to do it at a better level once you have the strength of those people because now they had they they feel like they have a voice they feel like they can work together to achieve goals and you've empowered them to make decisions or share feedback what i call constructive dissent so like in that story you shared i want somebody to tell me and to feel comfortable to tell me if they feel like we're going down a wrong path and they have data to support it you don't need a solution yet just just help me see something that's a blind spot for me i don't want in a hierarchical structure where 
because you feel fear to share with me, um, then somehow I might make a multi-million dollar mistake, right? Or potentially a mistake that costs lives, um, as opposed to uh, having that environment where a person can feel comfortable say, hey, so listen, we're all saying that this is great, but I see something here, let me share it with you. That's the culture to build, right? And so it, 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 the diversity part of it and that, that culture of belonging starts with acknowledging differences and hiring differences as a culture add or something that adds to the capability of your team, not just makes it look different. Mm. I don't, I don't know if in the UK that that's, if, if that's still like uh, kind of as much of an issue, um, around hiring practices involving diversity. I think, I think we, we, we're in the same boat. Uh, I think it's a big focus for us is, is that trying to have the right diversity in the right place. But I, I think exactly what you said there, we, we, we don't realize the actual potential of that, um, of those different cultures looking at things in different ways um, and just being able to add that diversity of conversation, diversity of ideas. We, we literally exactly the same as what you were saying. We follow those very rudimentary kind of database sets we have hired six Muslims and four Sikhs and four Christians and seven Catholics, whatever, um, yeah. four white people. And you could go on and on and on all day. You know, what, what we don't then do is, is kind of utilize that within a business. And, and as you were talking, I was just thinking that, um, there was this amazing, uh, bit in the same book from Matthew side that where they talk about, uh, they've got a group of Japanese people and they've got a group of American people and they showed them, uh, a picture or a real fish tank, I can't remember. And the American people were asked to describe what they saw and they spoke heavily about the fish that they saw. And then the mm. Japanese people were said the same question, can you please describe what you saw? And they described the, the background, the surroundings, the context of the picture. Mm. And so if you, if you just hired Americans in this one example, you're only ever going to see the fish. Yeah. If you just hire Japanese, you're only ever going to see the fish tank. You're never going yep. to see the fish. But if you hire Japanese and American, you're going to get a full picture. And for me, I just read that and I thought, wow, one, what a fascinating bit of research that must have been to do. But two, how, how much of a, how, a, such a simple way to put it. Um, and uh, to realize the, the immense power there. And you seem to be talking about exactly the same thing. Oh, yeah. So, and, and you kind of talk See, like, about it. Like your... I said, everything's been rewritten. It's just or been written. Yeah. Now it's just getting rewritten. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly that. And, and you talk about it being, it should be the number one priority in businesses in your oh, book. Yeah. So, but businesses have got to make profit. They've got a, you know, they've got a, they've got the health and safety guy banging on the door saying they need to do risk assessments. And they've got so many other priorities to do, you know, how and why should diver well we know why we just spoke about it but how do we prioritize that kind of inclusion and diversity um so here's the 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 sh there's not really a short answer i'll give i'll, I'll give the <laughs> i'll give the best i i can here so um you know, th th there was a study here done in America where 41% uh, of managers came back and said that they're just too busy to to build their culture because they have too many other things that they have to do. Mm -hmm. And so that same study goes on to debunk that myth and, um, and through through data in a lot of different ways. And and I'll just share kind of the, the very brief highlights here. The first piece is 
they examined all of the time that leaders spend doing all of these other things that you mentioned, right? We've got um, these meetings we have to get to and these calls we have to be on and this product we have to this and uh, this place we have to, to visit and uh, do a site visit and the health and safety guy who wants to do this <laughs> thing and I'm, I, my operations review that I have to prepare for. We've got all that going on. Every one of those things has one thing in common. They might have a couple, but they're pretty different categories, right? But they all have one thing in common. It requires people to get it done. And so when you think about if you are a, you know, a, 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 I'm going to use an American sports reference here. I apologize for this. But if you're a baseball pitcher in the National League, that means you don't hit. Right. You, you, you don't hit you. You have a de- in the American League, you have a designated hitter who hits for you. You're just the guy throwing the ball. So how much time are you going to spend um, in the batting cage working on hitting? You're probably not going to spend a whole lot working on that one particular skill because your job, your thing, you're the pitcher um, until one day you get traded over to a a different team in a different league and you have to be the guy who now hits right and you go man i really should have spent some time building this one fundamental skill that as a baseball player everybody else on the team has and i decided i wasn't going to build it well so i I use that example to kind of illustrate this idea that if people are at the the core aspect of everything that you have to accomplish whether it's your sales results or production results or or anything else and the team you lead are the folks who are getting that done then how could anything be more important than sharpening that axe, right? That That's mm. the axe that's going to go chop down the tree is those people, right? So if I'm worried about, man, I'm too busy because I have to really, you know, study this data and, and get a hold on the data so I can make sure that I can tell my team that they're not doing good so they can go do better, uh, That that is just wasted time. You can look at it and in a matter of a couple moments know enough information to go ask some questions and figure out what you can do and where you can do it. So so I, I guess the, the how is stop looking at outcomes before people. Look at people who are responsible to deliver those outcomes as your first priority. And I don't mean just, you know, high fives, right? That's not <laughs> what I'm talking about. We, we can actually get shit done. We can, we, we, can, we can really actually give good feedback, good coaching, understand real issues and problems. Um, and, and then when we have a conversation with maybe that, that recruiter who is, is trying to find people to fill the position I have open, I take the extra 30 seconds or minute to lead with what I want to see from a culture standpoint or a background standpoint of an ideal candidate rather than just skills or capabilities, right? But something mm. else that is going to add a dynamic to the team. So it's about do the same things you're already doing um, from, from a, an activity standpoint focus on the people and what you have then with with a power of people is less mistakes being made which means less messes to clean up and those messes take time right which means um less issues with results and performance that cause you to have to be on these extra calls or go to these extra meetings which take time so it's like you know i think we <laughs> we could use this example right i use a broken arm example i think you have a band-aid example but <laughs> oh if, yeah yeah if, Right. So if I if I have a broken arm in my it's a compound fracture, the bone is poking out of my skin um, and I'm bleeding everywhere. And you come up to me and say, oh, mate, I got this. And you wrap a bandage around my arm and my bleeding stops and you go, all right, back to work for you because you're not bleeding anymore. Like what the reality of that is just so asinine to think that that would be the case. Everybody listening right now, it can follow where this is going, because the reality is you have to treat 
what the real problem or what the real need is, right? And the real need is your people to be equipped, capable, uh, innovative, collaborative, and trusting so they can actually do all the work that makes your life easier. Mm. Trust me, my number one job as a leader is to have my team so good, they don't need me. Mm. They don't want me even, right? Because they, they're, they're so good at mm. what they're doing. And I know some leaders are afraid then that makes them obsolete or insignificant. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So now go get your promotion because you've mm. done what it takes to create such a great thing here that you need to go replicate that in other or bigger places. So yeah, that should be your mission. Make yourself obsolete in this role so you can take on a bigger or more challenging or different role. Mm. That that really kind of resonates for me when you when you said that about you kind of make your team as 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 uh, really good so you become obsolete. I remember I was very very young in my career and um, we had I was kind of like the team leader in the health and safety team for this manufacturing facility and we had this other lad start uh, on a temporary contract and he was awesome. And we'd been after an awesome assistant for a long time. We'd really struggled to get somebody. And I was very young, very naive, and sat with um, the managers. And they were all asking me, oh, what do you think of that other guy? I'm hearing a lot of good stuff. And I was like, yeah, he's all right. And they're like, but we're hearing loads of good about him. Like, what's what's going on? And I was like, he's all right. You know, get stuff done. And I was really kind of non-committal in my response and one of the managers took me aside caught me at the coffee machine or whatever later on and just said what's going on James and I said like he's he's good like he's really good and and like and they were like yeah so you know use him and teach him the safety side because he was very quality focused so you know teach him the safety stuff and I was like "Ah, I don't want to because I was threatened by him as opposed to Mm. as opposed to wanting him to be part of the team I was threatened by him and and I remember that that manager being like you know you're looking at it the wrong way if you can bring that guy into the safety side and the team becomes better and you're the team leader then then we're going to be looking at you saying wow what a great job and then he's going to jump up to your spot and you're going to jump up to the next spot and I remember that conversation to this day and think about that and that's it kind of resonated when you were telling that story there does this kind of stuff apply to like the the smaller businesses as well like you know this or is it easier and is it harder for a smaller business compared to somebody that employs anything from 500 to a thousand people and then some guy that's just employing 20 people um is any different is it the same yeah so fundamentally the principles are the same but it is different and does it apply yeah it absolutely applies anytime that you are interacting or interfacing with other people um all of this is is really important and really good stuff to to think through and have as a plan in your organization um because everybody that i've ever met in a professional setting knows that they're capable of giving more than they give on any given day on certain days right Mm -hmm. and and knows that they have ideas that they haven't shared or haven't felt comfortable to share that would be helpful. And that same dynamic can exist in a small office. In fact, I have an example uh, very recently. I was working with somebody. Uh, it's a team of six, right? The entire company is six people. And the founder, owner, um, he was, he, he's the office bully, which is horrible, right? And, um, and so with a team of six, he's intimately, as the owner, involved in everybody's face. 
uh, every single day. And so you could do that and go about that in two different ways, build an environment where people uh, trust you as that leader and that owner who's in their business every day uh, and feel compelled and and want to do such an exceptional job to either earn your praise or earn an opportunity. Um, or you can be that tyrant and that bully and that person who beats people down and then you wonder why you constantly have turnover uh, in your business and you're always hiring people and you're never accomplishing the things you need to. And so that's one of the biggest places that this has a negative impact because we haven't really talked about that yet. We've talked about the positive impact, mm. but the negative impact, and this is the same for large businesses, your best, most productive, most innovative, creative, and able people are the ones to leave first because they won't put up with the bullshit. They, mm -hmm. they, they know the value of their skills and their abilities and they shop them out and or they get recruited out candidly. And so who's left? Um, the people that you, you know, your middle 70% and then the people that you're actively working to try and develop or move into another role, right? And so um, so you end up having this turnover at your, at your most capable position. And if the old adage is true that 20% of the people do 80% of the work, uh, guess what? It's that 20% that you're losing. So you're just constantly handicapping your business. So it's, is it more difficult in a large size business than versus a small size to answer your question? Um, it's more difficult to do it or as an entire organization when you have 10,000 people versus when you have even a hundred, a hundred is much more manageable to do as an entire organization. Um, because there is more opportunity to align and inspect and support and high five all those <laughs> things that are going right in a large organization of say 10,000 you end up with um, so many hands that are involved from the top down that that could interpret the message a different way or not think it's important and do it differently or not do it at all <clears throat> to where um, it does become a little bit of a challenge. And so there are certain building blocks we put in place in large organizations that aren't necessary in smaller organizations for it to have that work. But here's mm -hmm. the reality. So you're listening to this. You are uh, a manager in a large company, but you have a team of maybe six people or 10 people. That's all it takes, man. You can do this all on your own with your team of six or your team of 10. And people will be coming to you and they'll be asking you, why is your team doing so good? Why are these numbers so great? Why is this happening so perfectly? And then when you share the answer of what you're working on and building from a cultural perspective, um, certainly ca capable and well-intentioned other leaders, your peers are gonna learn from you and they're gonna put it in place and share it, share it. That's the other thing that some leaders don't do is they don't share their best practices because they're afraid mm -hmm. somebody else is gonna outperform them. I yeah. say do it anyways, and if they outperform you, learn from them about what they tweaked to do a little bit better, and then you go take that, tweak that, and start doing better than them. I mean, I love competition. Competition is great. It's fun. It, it makes the work environment sometimes pretty cool. Mm. Um, so, so, so share and compete with everybody having the same set of, of information to work from, and culture is that one that guaranteed all the time employees perform better, results are better when that culture is intentional and it has that true sense of a feeling of belonging and trust where collaboration and innovation can thrive. Wow. Sorry, man. I just dumped a whole bunch on you. <laughs> no, that was good. I was just sitting there like, oh, like that was good. 
that that kind of thing you were talking about there about competition um you talk about like customer loyalty or or customer belonging in in your in your book so like how what's what's the difference and you know with all that yes there is a lot of competition in nearly every game you know within sure. the, within a safety game pro you know from my point of view there is so many consultants out there um that, that are all competing for each for for the slice of the pie i've always said that there's a there's a lot of people out there it doesn't matter what you're selling there's you, there's always going to be enough nine times out of ten for you to get your slice of the pie as well. However, how do you build that kind of loyalty, as I would say it? But for you, how do you make a customer kind of belong then? So, yeah. would that come inherently from you making your employees belong? Like Richard Branson said, like um, you focus on your staff first, and they'll look after your customers. Is that the same kind of thing? Yeah, Branson has that thing right for sure. I mean, it, it's um, that's a big, big, big statement, right? Meaning there's a lot of detail and work that goes yeah, into actually yeah. ma- making all that come together. And this is where now, like, so the belonging factor helps bring that tactical element to, to Branson's statement, right? And so the principles that I identified across leaders and brands that are incredibly successful um, are their shared principles. The, the five principles I write in the, in the book um, are shared between a brand, which is this kind of, you know, I don't know, institutional object, and leadership, which is a direct relationship with people, because a brand, if you're doing it right, is just a relationship with people. So mm. I use a couple of different examples in the book. Um, one of them, though, when it comes to the brand and building loyalty, Right, building a, a customer base that that is never going anywhere. Even if you piss them off, mm-hmm. they're not leaving. Right, and um, and so the example I use is a company called SJC Drums. They're out of um, uh, Massachusetts here in, in the U.S. and it's a, a drum manufacturer, like musical instruments. Right, uh, and they're competing in a space where you know you think about the product they sell. Like they sell a very high-end custom product. People pay you know eight thousand dollars for or whatever that is, like ten thousand pounds or something, uh, for for a drum set. That sounds crazy, right? Um, and they buy one or maybe two in their lifetime, you know, they, it's not like they're going bad, right? Um, and so you're talking about this this idea of forming a relationship with somebody to give them, to have them give you your money once, maybe twice in their life for something. But SJC has gone about this in such a crazy cool way about building what they call their family. It's not their customers, it's their family. And they've intentionally built a community both online and offline where customers of this brand get together and they collaborate and they share their stories and their ideas. And the the, the company is active in those those um, communities, whether, again, it's online like on Facebook or it's offline at events or other things that, that happen where um, they are soliciting ideas and they're listening and they're offering ideas and solutions back to folks um, that is so critical in the first step where people feel like there's this, this, the, um, you know, just calling them family doesn't work. You actually have to treat it that way, right? You have to mm. listen and respect and, um, and share and also collaborate and high five, you know? <laughs> and, and, and so, so the, the, the reality is the, those principles of building community and really defining um, what our identity is and our behaviors are and empowering people and giving people a voice and bringing diverse groups together and then and then figure out how to um, highlight all of the d- diverse backgrounds as 
strengths that people can learn from and share from and collaborate with all of that stuff is the exact same for a leader in a brand and so when, when when you talk about building loyal customers and i said you know even if you piss them off i mean you still have to take care of them and correct the situation but mm. but some companies some companies don't have the that fortunate relationship with their customers so if you upset them once they're gone even if you make it right um and so one of the biggest things that companies have to not do is compete on price right um, and because competing on price ultimately ends up being good for consumers in short term, but is is terribly handicapping to businesses in general um, and sometimes industries. Right. And so to, the best way to not have to compete on price is to create an environment where your people feel so compelled to be a part of your organization. Harley Davidson's another one. Right. Harley Davidson motorcycles. People put the mm. tattoo of the Harley Davidson logo on their body. Yeah. Why do they do that? Do they do it because they love their Harley Davidson that they bought so so much? Maybe, but not usually. They put it on their arm, somewhere that's just below their sleeve, somewhere where people can see it. So people know that they're a Harley rider because they mm. want to be part of that community, part of that family. Mm. And do you think that that person is ever going to buy another bike besides Harley in their life? Mm. Absolutely not. I think a, a great example of what the, over here in the UK would be Volkswagen. We, we've got quite a big Volkswagen community locally to me in, uh, uh, oh, Jesus, where is it? I can't remember the name of the place now. Anyway, there's like a, a racetrack locally and um, they always have a Volkswagen festival every year. And the amount wow. of people, the local villages are just full. Like if I go out on my bike, around the v-dub festival there's just campers and beetles everywhere and the roads are just full of them and you just think god that's some loyalty to a brand like some yeah. people exactly the same as harley davidson people some of these people get tattoos of that vw circle on there and you just think wow that that is that's just phenomenal how do you get that kind of loyalty um and I suppose that is the kind of that is the kind of question. Do you, do you start with your staff first? Do you focus on on developing loyalty within your business first, and then that will just become infectious and and spread? So it's it's an and, not a or, okay. or not a not a plus, but it's an and because if if truly you've done the first step, which is identifying and understanding what your values truly are. Um, so like SJC, the, the company, I give you the example from their values, quality, culture, and identity, right? So um, that's that's the basic principles of their values. And um, so everything has to align with the, the highest quality period. That means um, not just the drum that they manufacture and, and not just the supplier they get it from and not just the equipment machinery they purchase to you know make the, the the products but also the interactions that they have with each other right and then so they have they have ways to measure the quality of meetings for example when they do meetings um and so it it, it starts with defining that because once you define that then you can start to lay out what the behaviors are that you that exist in your organization that support those. And so you'll identify within the marketing and PR departments and advertising departments, all of the behaviors that should exist that don't just regulate how those employees interact and interface with each other and with their employer, but also it informs very clearly how the brand then, who these people drive, right? Uh, how the brand interfaces and interacts with the community and with prospective customers and with 
um, government or you know whatever whatever your other stakeholders potentially might be who are your customers or, or folks that you've influenced with and so it's an and and it mm. all stems from the alignment of those values first and, and very clearly defining those and then and then creating the definitions of what the behaviors look like to have the actual impact so it's it's not one first and then the other um, certainly you don't look after your employees and your employees aren't gonna look after your customers Branson was totally right about that but both can happen and must happen simultaneously. And when they don't, that's where you have the opportunity to start to figure out why. Mm. I, I, I 100% agree. I'm just kind of trying to put myself in the position of say like a CEO of yep. let's say, let's say uh, a car or motorbike company that wants to be the next Harley Davidson, that wants to be the next Volkswagen and create that kind of community, that loyalty within and without. So their customers and their staff and they're kind of thinking, well, that's all well and good. I know my values, but how can I get say a cleaner of, of the offices align their values to my values or the strategic management team? They're all in a very, a very specific role they're there for a very specific reason they've probably spent their life trying to become a strategic manager within the board and they become inherently very passionate about that but a lot of people in these kind of manual labor roles are there because they just need a job they want to go in get a job done and go home you could you could say the same for forklift driver you know uh, pick and packer in a warehouse whatever they just want to go in get a job done how do you align values of two inherently really different roles in a business yeah so i i don't know if i could i could give you the exact same you know alignment of values with the ceo who maybe is worried about his vacation to um, bali and and the guy who's just trying to put food on his table and, and yeah. get his son to university or something right yeah. so um but what i can tell you is something i learned from an experience i had very on in my leadership career and one that I, I definitely believe is um, is something that makes sense for the question you asked here. So I learned very early on that even though I was managing salespeople um, who you would think would be mo motivated just by earning a lot of money and having lots of money, um, that wasn't necessarily a motivator for everybody. And, um, and while it was for some, others maybe were more motivated by getting recognition for, for being a top performer. Well, when... And you have then everybody else in the middle, what do you do? So going back to your question, what I learned was <clears throat> coaching to to an outcome for the business and quit talking to people about you know an outcome for their work product and start talking to them about their lives. So this is where it comes in for, for both um, a laborer and a CEO. What do you want to accomplish in your life? And I'm going to help you do whatever it takes to help you be able to accomplish that. So maybe you're a laborer. And actually, let me just use the example that, that I had from my learner. So I sat and I talked with one of my employees, Jessica. She wasn't performing particularly well for an extended period of time. And I talked to her about what she wanted to do in her life and what she wanted to accomplish. And keep in mind, this was a sales role, so they, they can increase their compensation. And um, and so I I talked to her about these things, and she said, well, she wanted to buy a boat because she want, she likes getting out on the lake and going boating. I said, well, fantastic. Let's work out a plan to get there. And so we worked on what her financial goals would need, her earnings would need to be to be able to afford a boat. And then once she did got, get the boat, she needed to get a truck to be able to tow the boat to the lake and <laughs> drop it in. So we worked on that. And then fast forward like another year and we we're still working together and everything was doing great. She's consistently making all this extra money now. And she's happy with what she's doing because she has this happy life outside of work. Now she wanted to buy a house 
and she needed a house that was big enough to have a place to park her boat. So, <laughs> so we we worked on a financial plan to do that. So it's the same thing. Find out what the intrinsic, underlying, important things are. So for a CEO, maybe it's getting um, you know recognition uh, publicly to be able to be able to sit on some boards that the CEO wants to sit on of some other companies. Maybe that's a, a motivation. And so some of that comes from the results of the organization, but others of it comes from his own or her own personal profile, right? So they're building up their profile. So things that can align with the company doing great, them doing some sort of philanthropic or other work that, that, um, or the company also doing it at the direction that all blends in together and, and helps elevate that outcome that that CEO wants, but also helps what the organization is wanting to do. Same thing for a laborer. Um, showing up, do your job. Okay, that's great, but you have things you want to accomplish. And if you just showed up and did your job perfectly for the next 10 years and stayed in the role for the next 10 years, you know, your income is going to stay relatively the same adjusted for inflation. What are these things you want to accomplish, whether it's financial or it's time off or it's some other things that they, w they would like to be able to do in their lives? And then figuring out a way to connect those that result or that outcome into those things that are available as opportunities at work. Not just what's in front of them for the job they're doing now, but maybe working a little bit harder, a little bit more dedicated or a little bit more closely to it to get the next job that is going to help them do that thing that they want to do. Even if that next job is out of your company, by the way. Even if that next job is out of your company, because you're going to get the benefit of an incredibly loyal person who may not want to leave you, but you've developed their skills and capabilities to a place where you don't have a role for them anymore and they're better off going somewhere else. You're going to have an advocate out there who's mm -hmm. going to just talk so favorably about your company and they're going to send you highly qualified referrals when something comes their way. And, um, and by the way, you're ha you have the benefit of them being a so much better employee and more productive person during the time you have them. So don't be mm -hmm. afraid to promote somebody outside of the, their, uh, outside of your company. If you know what I mean, promote them out mm -hmm. of the capability of working for you. That is a testament to the true character of a belonging factor leader. Mm. It's kind of reminiscent of like that kind of karma piece, isn't it? If you, you kind of coach somebody and mentor them and let them go and, you know, eventually it's going to come back around and, and, and repay, you know, you're paying it forward in a way, aren't you? Yeah, and, and even if it doesn't come back around in any way that you can identify, that's great too because you were true to your values as a leader. Mm -hmm. um, you, you you created a situation where a person is better off. Well, you helped them create a situation where they're better off um, and you got the benefit of all of their work product during the time you had them. Like mm -hmm. that, that, that can never be the wrong decision. Never. Mm -hmm. And by the way, so now to align that to the CEO, yeah, the CEO got this one person and we're just using an example of one, theoretically it's spread across the organization, but the CEO got the benefit of this one person um, kind of working above their pay, if you will, right? Do, mm. doing more than they had been doing for the same amount of money. <laughs> Beautiful, love it. Mm. And I think that there's part of it to, is also just that kind of, uh, I can't think of the word, but it reminds me of um, you know do, doing this podcast. You, you get the odd person that says something nice on on LinkedIn or Twitter, shares it and says good podcast or whatever, and that's really really nice. And you think yeah. wow, but I'm the one thing that kind of really sticks out to me. There's one gentleman um, sent me a message and he said, 
they loved my podcast and he listened to my podcast on the way to well actually he was listening to my podcast and he was going to a job interview in a couple of days he wanted some advice I gave him some advice it's the first time anyone's ever asked me for advice and uh, and I was really quite proud of myself that somebody you know felt they could ask me for advice and that was a big moment for me and I felt really invested in this young man now like straight away and gave him advice and and he he went away he got the job but he messaged me the day after um, I did the interview or got the job I can't remember but he said he listened to my podcast on the way and used bits from my podcast to use in the interview and he just ah. wanted to say thank you and and I remember saying to my wife I was buzzing like for for like four days I was I could have been high on life I literally was just loving life for me even now thinking about that it makes me so happy and it's that kind of piece you were saying there like it's not necessarily maybe that monetary value you get back but that, that kind of inner feeling that wow I helped somebody for me it didn't matter I wasn't getting paid for the podcast it, it didn't matter how many people listened to me yeah. anymore it didn't matter how many shares likes downloads whatever it was gone all I could think was wow that guy I helped him get a job and that was just phenomenal it was amazing so that, that's that's a wonderful story man and you know so one thing that comes to my mind as you're sharing that story is not everybody listening has that same wiring internal wiring to where that that is something that feels good and charges you up for four days mm. and and that, that's a big part of this idea of diversity too is that that's okay if a person is kind of selfish and kind of not a uh not a not a big pay it forward type of person that that's mm. okay for a person to to be that way uh in the context of a work environment because um not not everybody's wired the same so it, it's mm. still about finding out though what it is that 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 person is wired to enjoy uh, and look for a way to help that be something that you can um create more of in their life in in how you coach them how you work with them how you support them as a as a leader and so you know if you're in a leadership position and you don't have any of that wiring i'll tell you right now just my opinion supported by data you were probably in the wrong job uh, a leader is a people first position or a person who leads humans to deliver outcomes other than that you're just a manager and maybe you're a manager of processes and that's okay too um, but if you have people you look after sharpening that people skills axe and making that axe ready to, to to go is the most important thing that you can do because if your people leave and you're stuck with bad ones, uh, unproductive ones, and people who don't like you or respect you, you're not a leader anymore, right? Mm. Uh, le leaders, leaders are not people who have titles. Leaders are people who have followers. Mm, definitely, 100%. I'm conscious that we are we are going on for a time, but there are a couple of things that I want to touch on. You you kind of talk about privilege quite heavily in your book. You've got a whole chapter kind of dedicated to that, You're quite candid in that as well. Like, do you want to touch briefly on on that? What what privilege means to you? Why why it got a whole chapter? Yeah, it did get a whole chapter, and here's why. So, as a as a straight white man in America. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the historical majority of all kind of power roles and decision making in in my country. And, um, you know, unless you are, you know, I, I 
that that kid who grew grew up with your parents, um, you know, super wealthy parents or something, telling you that you have all this power and privilege, and so and you grow up with that, which I don't think most people are. Then you know, so like for me, I, I was unaware of all of the benefit that that necessarily provided me, all of the advantages that I potentially had for nothing that I did, just something that was done for me, right? You you asked me uh, my story of, of how I got here, and, I, and you know, it's funny. I'll circle back to that. I got here because of no decision of my own. I got here because mm. of my parents, right? Mm. And my parents were both white, and I happened to be straight, and all of those things happen, and so now I'm this white, straight male in America. And there were these moments that it really started to kind of hit me upon reflection of where I might have had an advantage or an opportunity that somebody else didn't have, um, just because of that. And one of those was actually in boot camp in the Navy. I was, um, I was a person who was in what we call the sea cadets. It's kind of like a, I don't know, imagine like a boy scouts for, uh, yeah, we have the same over here. Okay. Beautiful. And so, you know, and, and so I ended up as a sea cadet, um, then going into the Navy and the, they were trying to choose the, the, the people in charge of us boot camp, the drill instructors to choose who would be the recruit leader. And they chose me because I was a sea cadet. And so then I started kind of leading them and I was talking to and getting to know everybody else in, in my bootcamp division. And I found out that there was another dude there. He happened to be Hispanic. He was also in sea cadets for longer than me. He outranked me. He was in better physical condition th than me. His ADSVAB score, the, the military test that you take to get in was higher than mine. So by all of those kind of um, objective metrics on paper, he might have might have been the guy. He probably should have been the guy to to lead us. Mm. And my two drill instructors were both white men. So I didn't see this or really recognize this in the time. But upon reflection, I realized I was awarded that position when really nothing that they were evaluating that I could tell put me ahead of him, except mm. for the fact that I look like them. Mm. And and so. I, I bring this up and I write about it in the book because there, there's an importance of what I call allyship or being a person who looks for opportunities to recognize something that is wrong or, or that that is in this case, you know, I'm talking about privilege that gave an advantage to me, which means disadvantage to others and be an ally for those who may be disadvantaged, be an ally for that person who has shared with you as a peer that they have these ideas about how something could change at work, but they're too afraid to or um, they don't feel like they can explain it to somebody who would maybe actually listen to it. So be an ally for them, particularly if that person is somehow on the other side of the opportunity divide, right? And maybe you're a white guy. And so maybe they're going to listen to you even though they won't listen to him. Is that fair? Hell no. But does that mean you can do something about it and start to use your privilege as, as something that can help others? Um, and more importantly, if it's something that helps make your job easier, be selfish about it, and, you know, mm. share it, right? And, and help this person share it. More importantly, don't just take it from them and run with it, but help them share it. And sometimes that means as a person who has some privilege, it sometimes it means that you have to be the the one to, to at least open the door to the idea and then you can usher them along. But, uh, you know, it, racism, sexism, ageism, all, all of those things um, are, are things that are prevalent across societies and communities across the world. And yeah. so it's about it's about if you are in a position of privilege, no matter what your community or society is. I explained mine in America as being a white male, but it could be different depending on where you live in the world. If you are in that position of privilege, understand that that can be a tool for others and should be a tool for others. 
um, because it, it doesn't just help them, it helps you. Mm. Well, fair, fair play for kind of trying to address what is a massive international controversial subject in a, in a right. book about leadership where a lot of people would probably just avoid that uh, and just be like, nah, I'm not going to talk about privilege. So fair play to you for, for kind of addressing that. Yeah, man, I'll tell you, there was some debate about whether or not that chapter stayed. Yeah. Um, and and it, to, to me, it's too important. They go hand in hand because how can you talk about this idea of building these things that sound very utopian and very you know, mm. uh, aspirational and difficult to achieve without starting to talk about the fact that there are people with privilege and power who can actually do something about it, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that they have to be the CEO or the v mm. vice president or, or whoever. It can be, without question, any of us at any time for the right reasons. Yeah, you kind of have to acknowledge it to be able to 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 kind of move past it in a way, or 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 embrace it and and kind of use it, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah, man, absolutely, absolutely. And anybody anybody who tells you tells you in in Western society that being white and male is not a privilege is um, completely out of touch, blatantly lying. Mm, so use that to your advantage. You use that to not just your advantage, but the advantage of others, which helps actually give you an advantage because it's way cooler to be cool than to be a dick. <laughs> what a great way to finish. And, yeah. and I think maybe we maybe we, there. we leave it that high, a virtual high five. And yeah. it's, uh, it's a great conversation. And, and by the fact that we've gone over our, our hour and I could. And I've still got things that I think, ah, oh, I'd love to talk about this. I'd love to talk about that. So maybe we get you back on. But if um, if people are loving this conversation as much as I am, they think, I need this book. I need to talk to, to Devin. I need to find out more. Um, why don't you tell us just, just quickly about what, what you are, what your business is, and how they can get a copy of your book or, or find out more about you and your business? Yeah, absolutely. So a few things. Um... So though I think we can put a link in your show description where maybe we could give away a couple free autographed copies of the book to your listeners. I think that that would be super rad. Yeah. So I, I I don't have the link off the top of my head, but I'm sure we'll have this in the show notes. So if you want to get an autographed copy of the book, go there, fill out your email address. We'll contact you if you're the winner and send you a book. But if you want to check it out um, yourself, Amazon, Amazon.com or co.uk, as it were, <laughs> and and you will search for belonging factor and you you will definitely find the book out there it's in every possible format that i could get them to to produce it so <laughs> um so so however you like to consume it it's there and uh find me on linkedin linkedin is a great way to connect with me i'm very active in linkedin so devin d-e-v-i-n halliday also the link i'm sure we can have in the show notes yes, if you want to do that um and, and i and i am actually uh doing a lot of work coming up in the next year in the UK uh, and in England with uh, conferences and working with some clients. So um, it, no matter where you're located, it is not too far away for us to do some work together. Awesome. Yeah, I might hit you up when you come over to America. We'll have a, we'll have a coffee or a beer and continue your yeah, conversation. Yeah, let's have a pint. For sure. You can have some proper beer over here in the UK. Not like oh, that crap man. you drink over yeah. there. Jesus Christ. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm, I'm game for whatever. I love learning about other cultures, other people, and uh, figuring out how to um, how to impart my American values upon you. <laughs> uh, 
I'll bring out our oh, inner we, American. We will high five. We will <laughs> high five. <laughs> Amazing. We will drop all the links, especially a link to uh, a free copy of the book in the autograph copy of the book in the description and your LinkedIn and absolutely everything that we can. We'll drop in the in the the, uh, the description. So. Devin, thank you so much for an awesome, awesome conversation. And like I say, hopefully we'll maybe get you back on in the future and hopefully people go and get a copy of your book. Yeah, I'd love to. Absolutely. Thanks for the gift of your time. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Have a good night. All right. Okay, guys, I hope you found that conversation interesting, useful on how to create a belonging culture in your business. I think Devin really articulates his book and the and the, you know the building of a belonging culture really, really well, really clearly. It's got a great personality that comes off really, really well. Don't forget to get in the link in the description and get a free copy of your book, people. I've got it. It's a great book. So get your copy, get reading. Once you finish reading it, let me know. If you do get a free copy, once it's delivered, take a photo of it and tag me in the post. Put it on Facebook at Rebranding Safety. Put it on LinkedIn, tag James McPherson. Put it on Twitter at Rebranded Safety. Come and find us and let us know you've got the book. Once you've finished, let us know how it is as well. If you listen on YouTube, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you never miss another episode. Whatever platform you listen on for the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe if you can. If you can give us a rate and review, we would absolutely love that as well. Please help us help other people. Share this podcast, people, because it is the best health and safety podcast out there. It's modern, it's entertaining, and we got awesome people and sometimes some amazing giveaways like today. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I'll catch you next week. Safe.